Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Hebrews chapter 6. This text is a wonderful contrast and uh, it fits much of what we've sung about today. And we need to hear words like this today, by the way, because our day is in many ways, uh, sweeping us off our feet with change. These are really breathtaking days that we live in. Days in which we have seen all kinds of upheaval. The foment of change is everywhere. If you think on a global scale, the last few years we've seen more change than we've seen in a hundred years. The death of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the vast realignment of nations that even presently is going on in our world and we wonder at times what all that is going to lead to, but change is incredibly taking place at an incredible pace. Who would have believed that just five years ago that the Soviet government would be asking the American church to come and to teach their public school teachers the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they could take that back into the schools and teach it to the students? That's an amazing fact, but uh, just this week, or just last week, I got an invitation to go and do just such a thing. Isn't that amazing? Our world is changing everywhere. Amazing times we live in. But there are also times of incredible spiritual change. You know, since the breaking of this century in 1900, we have seen some incredible changes take place in the Christian church. We saw the death of the European church. Go to Europe today, enter any of the churches, there's a meager handful of people. Most of the cathedrals, most of the great churches that stand in Europe today do so, do so as museum pieces, not as alive, vibrant Christian bodies. We have seen some incredible changes in the American church the last 91 years too. The Christian church in America, the Orthodox Christian church, I might say, dominated the American scene in 1900. But I believe in 1991, Orthodox Christianity is presently being threatened with what I call minority status. That's why you have the title on your message this morning. Unless something dramatic happens, I think the feeling of being in a spiritual minority for people who truly believe what Christianity has taught for 2,000 years, will find themselves in a more acute situation than ever before by the end of this century in feeling minority status. You know, I've never had the, uh, the opportunity of feeling like a minority. There are some of you who perhaps have. You maybe are a different color skin, uh, different uh, ethnic nationality. Maybe you've come to America. Certainly we have many in our church who have. Uh, but I've never felt a minority status before. I've never felt discrimination. I've never felt being set apart with suspicion like I know some have. I've never felt excluded without cause or denied rights or opportunities. But I want you to know that we live in a changing world. And the perception of Orthodox Christianity today is mostly one of being regressive not progressive, of being anti-intellectual, of a group that is arrogant about their beliefs that are incompatible in a relativistic world. 
with standards that really are unrealistic for anyone who is reasonable or practical or who understands the world as it is with a lifestyle that quite often is hypocritical. And we have to take some of the blame for that as well. Those images will grow, I, I believe, in the 90s. All the, the uh, gurus of, of uh, the future are saying that to us today. And I think we will feel a growing hostility from our world and a sense of discrimination and alienation, a measure of ridicule. Uh, that's on the horizon for the Orthodox Christian Church. Now, when I say Orthodox Christian Church, I mean the church that believes what the church has believed over 2,000 years. And though there are many churches in our city and many churches in our state and, of course, many churches across the nation, many of those churches do not believe Orthodox Christianity. And so what will happen when it no longer feels fashionable to be a Christian? Maybe you don't feel that yet. I believe you will feel that unless something dramatic happens in our country. What happens when it's not fashionable? What happens when it appears strange to those who work around you or those who are your friends for you to really embrace these things as if you believe them? Any of you saw 2020 the other night with Barbara Walters interviewing Dan and Marilyn Quayle. There were a few places in that interview where she asked them about their faith in Jesus Christ and asked them some very pointed questions about Noah and the ark and things like that. And you sensed a tinge underneath the surface of, can you really believe you believe this? How does one live as a spiritual minority? Well, you know, the book of Hebrews answers a lot of those questions because all through the book we are addressing, or at least the writer is addressing, a group of people who in fact were a spiritual minority and felt the reality and the discrimination and the persecution and the heat of being such a minority. Uh, theirs was a minority feeling day to day and there was great pressure to fold up your tent and to give in and to draw back to the culture in which you live so that you wouldn't stand out, but rather you could blend back in. Some had even given up. Uh, some had fallen away. And that was the whole direction of Bill's message last week. This week, though, I want to address those that hadn't. You see, many had not. And to these people, the writer offers some very powerful encouragement. If you're in chapter 6, look at verse 9. He says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And things that accompany salvation or belong to salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He's referring back to those fiery verses of, uh, that are just above in verses 4 through 8. We're convinced of better things concerning you. There are two words that stand out to me. Uh, really that are particularly noteworthy in verse 9. If you'll just notice them with me. First of all, the first word, but. But. It's a great contrast here. As great as the contrast in Ephesians 2 where it comes and talks about our depraved state and it says, but God. And then gives us a whole another scenario of salvation. Here the but is referring to two groups of people. And if you remember last week in verses 4-8 through eight, as Bill was walking us through that very difficult passage the writer is warning uh, those who had fallen away, those who had tasted of Christianity but had not taken it seriously, uh, that there was a place out there 
where you can actually become, even in Christ, useless to God. That there's a place there. To remain in a chronic state of immaturity, one dances, he says, with danger. The danger of coming to a place, though we never know where that place is, he doesn't describe it to us, he only warns us of it. A place where you can get where there is the point of no return. Where it's impossible to renew one to repentance. Where faithlessness replaces faith. And where one becomes, well, look at verse 8. Where one becomes worthless. You see the word? Worthless not to God, because God has embraced that child of faith at one point in time. He'll remain faithful. But worthless to the cause, the will, the work of God in the world. And as Bill mentioned, that had actually happened to some. Some in that number who had been called at one time the Jerusalem church. But that's why the word but is so special. But not all. Verse 9 introduces us to those who did more, and I want to say this very carefully, who did more than just get saved. See, that's who he's introducing us to. Those who did more than just get saved. They were, and here's the second word, notice it in verse 9, they were better than that. This word better in verse 9 is a very favorite word to the writer of the book of Hebrews. If you go through the Bible, the word better, this word is only used 19 times in the whole Bible. 13 of those times it is used in the book of Hebrews. He uses the word better over and over again. We've already seen that he used better in regards to to the fact that we have a better high priest. And he'll mention more of that when we get into chapter 7. We have something better between man and God in the person of Jesus Christ than any other religion can offer. Later in this book, he will say we have a better covenant, a new contract with God. We have a better sacrifice for sin, a better destiny, a better resurrection. Better, better, better. Have you ever seen the parquet commercial a few years ago? (laughs) When he opens up the lid of the parquet and it goes, butter. But when I think of myself as opening up the book of Hebrews, that's what I hear, except it's better. Better. It's always better. For anyone of any intellectual status who takes the time and the energy to compare Jesus Christ with any other religion, who takes the time and energy to understand the tenets of Christianity, the rigorous observation and testing that Christianity has gone through, as opposed to all other world religions. One will come out with one word, better. Better. Better in every regard. And that's what this writer wants to keep throwing in front of these Hebrew Christians as they're tempted to succumb to their culture because of their minority feelings. It's better. Don't give up. And certainly don't give in. And certainly some of these here had not done so in Jesus Christ. They had found a better everything, a better way to live. You know, the word better doesn't just apply in the book of Hebrews, though, to God, to Jesus Christ, to His covenant, to His sacrifice. The word better, and it's used here, applies to us as well. That's why he mentions it. Better things concerning you. See, when God looks at our lives and how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis, I just want you to know His expectations. His expectations are that when He looks at you, Compared to everyone else, he's going to say, better. 
better. In every case, better. That's his expectation. Not just that he gave you salvation, not just something that he did for you, that's a better way. But that from you, there are things, and notice the phrase, that accompany salvation from you. The word there means, and you've got probably a reference there, it means things that belong to salvation. Things that should naturally flow out of the better work that Christ has done for you. And the things that should flow out of a better work that Christ has done for you is a better way of life. He even tells us what some of those things are. He calls them things in verse 9, but when you get to verse 10, he even enumerates some of those things. He says, your work. See it there in verse 10? Your work. Those are some of the things. You've worked for Him. Notice it says, uh, he, He's not forgotten something else that's better. The love which you've shown for His name. The fact that in time past, if you look at the next one, that you have ministered to others. You haven't collapsed back into what is a sick American lifestyle of narcissism. But you've given your life away. You've ministered to others. And then he says, and for some of you, you're still in that present ministry. That's better. That's better than anyone else. And who isn't attracted to someone who thinks of others, who reaches out to others, who's concerned with others? Who, who even in our day, doesn't look at those people and say they're better? I'd like to be around them. See, many of these Hebrew Christians had these better things in their lives. But I can't help but think that as time has gone on and the heat has turned up and they feel more and more an isolated pocket of this city, beaten down by others, looked at with suspicion, persecuted, turned off, kept from certain advantages because of their peculiar belief that under the pressure and persecution of that hostile environment, with some of their numbers having fallen away, with meager results as far as their expectations when they first embraced this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they were at a place where they were wondering, is it worth it? Have you ever been there? <laughs> you've, you've reached out. Maybe you're a community group leader. Maybe you work with youth. Maybe you have some friends that you lead a Bible study with. Maybe there are people that you're just helping and taking care of. And you get into their lives and you see all the different fabrics and it goes on and on and on and you're expending yourself. And others come because they see, here's a person who wants to give. And anytime somebody spots somebody who wants to give, they attract people. And suddenly you come to a place in your life where you've been giving and giving and giving and giving and you've been trusting and trusting and trusting and trusting and one day you pull up and you say, is this going anywhere? Because all I get is more problems and a lot of heat for taking a stand for righteousness. And people put me down. People think I'm strange. And you start wondering, is it worth it? Am I... Where are the results? I had expectations that when I became a Christian and I began to apply all this stuff, things would just open automatically. I think of kind of almost a Red Sea experience. And sometimes in the beginning when we became a Christian, some of those things took place which even fuel our expectations that life should be one Red Sea experience after another. But when it gets into the grind, how do you go on? And not only when it gets to be a grind, but people look at you like you're strange. Or they get mad at you for taking a stand. Because in our world, there's only one thing you can't do. <laughs> Take a stand. 
See, everything is relative. How do you do that? You know, I've often wondered that. I don't, I don't know what you know about all that I do. Sometimes people wonder, what do pastors do? But, but you know, much of the work that goes on with the staff of our church is where you're privately involved in people's lives behind the scenes, trying to help them, taking on difficult issues, sometimes in the course of a week, more difficult issues than most people take on as far as crisis in the course of a year. And, and you can have those things, and they don't go away just in a week. Some of them string out for years and years and years. There are times you wonder, gosh, is it worth it? Am I seeing anything? Where, where is the victory in all of this? You know, verse 10, I think, answers our disillusionment. Verse 10 answers what you do when you feel discouraged. And, and I think it says it as, as loudly by what it doesn't say than by what it does say. See, you don't go on in the Christian life by looking for results. <laughs> you see, there's no results there. You, do, you don't go on in the Christian life by looking for impact. Because if you do that, you've missed the North Star. And what's going to happen is, is it's going to cause you to be tempted to jump ship. Remember, the apostles had to learn that lesson the hard way. See, when they joined on with Jesus Christ, they didn't join on for sacrifice, service, and death. They signed on because they saw revolution, victory, enthronement, popularity. That's what they signed on for. And they believed that even though Jesus Christ kept warning them, just as I'm warning you, that's not the place to look. That's not the place to look. They kept looking at that place. And when finally their bubble burst, what did they do? They ran away, didn't they? <laughs> they did exactly what you and I would be tempted to do when you feel like a minority. Verse 10 answers how you maintain steadiness in the midst of a changing world. It's not answered by impact or results. It's answered by pointing to a God who does not forget. <laughs> Boy, I would underline that. A God who does not forget. Do you remember when we went through the book of Nehemiah? When we went through the book of Nehemiah, there were times I would almost tear up in the service when I heard this phrase because it's listed in the book of Nehemiah over and over again. Remember, Nehemiah was the leader sent back to a disillusioned people to help them rebuild the walls of the, their city. And he came back and what he found was a despondent people, but he also found a disbelieving people. And what's worse, he found an arrogant, rebellious people even though they were in poverty. They didn't want to change and they didn't want to take chances and they didn't want to take risks and they didn't want to disturb the status quo. They just wanted to complain about their condition. But as a minority of one, he led them out of that. But I tell you, if you go through that book over and over again, Nehemiah was only one man alone many of the times. And he uttered this phrase over and over again in the book of Nehemiah. He would get to an end of one of these events where he'd confront the people or confront the enemy or confront a crisis. And at the end, he would utter this single sentence prayer. Remember me, O God, for my good. Nobody else will. Nobody else is looking. Nobody else is going to write about it. Nobody's going to make me popular. He was never popular. Remember when you get to the end of the book, he comes back to those people, tears out some of the guy's beards because of what they've done. And then you know how the book of Nehemiah ends? 
Chapter 13, the last verse. <laughs> Remember me, O God. Here's the good news. He does. That's the good news of verse 10. He does. He remembers. He remembers every time someone calls up another person who's hurting and though that person has never changed and may not ever change. He remembers your work. He remembered why you worked and worked and spent years counseling that couple not to divorce, not to hurt their children, but they did. And they hate you for taking the stand you did. And they went out and gossiped about you being so self-righteous. And so now you get even more alienated. But God remembers. He is not so unjust, it says, as to forget your work. Let me tell you, if faithfulness, if your faithfulness or satisfaction uh, concerning your Christian life is dependent upon results, is dependent upon acceptance, is, is dependent upon being in the majority or, or being accepted by the crowd you move in, you can't live better. You can't live it. You can't last for long, not as God intended. Because to have it better, you must rest on the God who does not forget. It's not in His nature to forget. He is not so unjust ever to forget. He remembers. And when there comes times where you have spiritual responsibilities, Christian, Christ follower, and it's hard, and you don't like it, and you feel like if I take another step, it's going to mean even more alienation, Say, remember me, O God, and then do it. Because He will. See, this is the encouragement when you're a spiritual minority. And you can be that even if there is everyone claiming to be a Christian, you can still be in the spiritual minority. See, it's on this aspect of the character of God that He's just, that He rewards service, that then the writer here goes on to exhort these people to live a life far beyond average. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. <laughs> until the end of your life. We want you to show the same diligence so that you can receive, and here's the key phrase, the full assurance of hope. What does that phrase mean? You know, hope is often used all the way through the New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ. But here's what I think it's really saying as a phrase, the full assurance of hope. It speaks of a life that will have no regrets at the end. That's what it's speaking of. You know, you go through, if you invest money in things, uh, you go through seasons where, where stocks are up and stocks are down and, and the, the scary investor, you know, he... Sometimes he can get so paranoid about those cycles that he withdraws completely. And I always tell you, you've got to hang in there over a long period of time. That's exactly the way the Christian life is. Anybody that becomes a Christian, it doesn't go like this. It has these seasons where it goes up and down. You can expect some very severe valleys at different points. Not that you've necessarily brought on. Maybe others have brought it to you. But you can expect to go through that. But the thing is, at the end... If you stayed faithful, just like the investor, there's a life without regret. You know, if there's one thing I fear more than anything else as a Christian, is that in living for a period of time, 
focused on that period of time, taking all my values and cues from that period of time, that I would sell myself and Christianity and Christ short so that when I finished, I would look back at that particular period and say, I wish I would have not done that. I, I wish I would have stuck it out and, and, and experienced the high point of victory coming out of that cycle. But now I can't, I can't cheer with the rest because I sold out that moment in time. Listen to this quote from Irma Bombeck about regret. She said, if I had my life to live over again, I would have waxed the floor less and listened to my kids more. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy and complaining about the shadows over my feet, I'd have cherished every minute of it and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was my only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. I would have invited friends over to dinner even if the carpet was stained and the sofa faded. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room and worried about the dirt and worried less about the dirt when you lit the fireplace. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have burnt the pink candle sculptured like a rose before it melted being stored. I would have sat cross-legged on the lawn with my children and never worried about the grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less while watching television and more while watching life. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband, which I took for granted. I would have eaten less cottage cheese and more ice cream. <laughs> I would never have bought anything just because it was practical. When my child kissed me impetuously, I would never have said later, now go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love you's and more I'm sorry's, more I'm listening, but mostly given another shot at life, I would have seized every minute of it and never given that minute back until there was nothing left of it. You know, this writer in some ways is saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> They've been Christians 20 years and he's saying, go on. You're in a valley, but go on. Despite your circumstances, go on and milk the relationship that God has given you in Jesus Christ that's better for all it's worth. Don't get at the end when you had an opportunity for full assurance and get at the end and say, I wish I would have. I wish I would have. I wish I would have. Our God has taken the mystery out of life as to what is best if we'll just believe it. Look at verse 12. He says, and then he changes from a you all to a you singular here. He says that you, you the individual, may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. <laughs> that you may not be sluggish. It almost sounds like a gasoline commercial, doesn't it? You know, when you have a car and it's sluggish, you've got to have some... Different fuel with high-octane uh, power in it. You know what the high-octane power of a Christian life over a long period of time is? The fuel that gets you through the long haul. Let me tell you what it isn't. It's not emotion. You'll never get there on emotion. Let me tell you what else it isn't. It's not knowledge. You'll never get there by knowledge. It's not friends. You'll not get there by friends. It's not a good church. You'll not get there to the end just because of a good church. 
The octane of a long Christian life is found in verse 12. It says, faith and patience. There it is. For a full Christian life, to get to the end and say, I have no regrets, there are going to be two things that you must become a master of. Faith and patience. Faith that Jesus' way of life is the best way of life, regardless of the circumstances at any particular time. And I would ask this question, do you believe that? See, I think one of the hardest things for the church that's just gotten saved to do is then to go on from that gotten saved state and believe that the lifestyle that Jesus Christ is offering is the best way of life. Are you willing to believe that to place your life on the line for that? You need the following. Your focus must be on a God who does not forget, not results. On God who does not forget. Your conviction must be that Jesus' way of life is the best way, regardless of what others say and regardless of what the times are. Because you'll move through those times. The 90s will be gone in 10 years. And times will be different and there'll be new issues to face. And your assurance of this hope can only be realized by faith and patience. That's the fuel that gets you through. Now he gives us an illustration of one who did that. The writer holds up someone that these Jewish Christians would be familiar with and that's the father of their nation. The father of their people and that's Abraham. He says he's a believable hero here. He's somebody that you can trust. Let me tell you, Americans don't trust anybody today. <laughs> and with good reason, they don't trust anyone today. In fact, I'm struck by how much our world yearns for a real hero. You know, they took a poll, and that poll indicated that most Americans, over 90%, don't believe there are any heroes in our world today. Lying has become an acceptable fabric of American culture when a politician runs for office, do you expect him to tell the truth? I'm not picking on any one politician. But do you expect him to tell the truth? No, you don't. Not any. When a product comes before you on the TV screen and it talks about new and improved, do you believe that? See, we've become a very cynical culture. And with good reason. You know, years ago, a believing nation heard this advertisement. I'm going to quote the advertisement. According to, this is back in the 1950s, According to a recent national, nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Three leading independent research organizations, there's authority there, asked this question of 113,000 doctors, what cigarette do you smoke? The brand name most was Camel. Now you probably enjoy rich, full flavor and cool mildness in a cigarette just as much as doctors do. And that's why, if you're not a camel smoker now, try camel on your T-zone. T for throat. Your proving ground for any cigarette. See if camel's cool mildness isn't in harmony with your throat. See if you too don't say, camel suits my T-zone to a T. <laughs> you know, I got the opportunity uh, about a year ago when I went down, my mom was ill, she was in the ICU unit, and I walked into that ICU unit, and it happened that my cousin was there too, who had smoked camels all his life, sitting in that ICU unit, choking to death on his fluids from emphysema. See, it's hard to believe in our world today. And I would say, if you want to know how to believe, usually the key indicator of believability is time. Time. 
That's the reason 250,000 New Yorkers showed up in Central Park, by the way, to hear Billy Graham. <laughs> Not Jimmy Swaggart, Billy Graham. And the reason they showed up is because they have had the privilege of watching a man over time prove his believability. New York is not a very religious community, by the way. But they came out yearning to see someone who had the real thing. That's what they came out to see. Abraham was the real thing. They knew it because they had seen him over time. I mention this because God gives heroes in the past for us to look back to because we need that perspective. We really do need it. But He doesn't want you to wait around looking for someone in your day and then waste your life because there are none around. He wants you to be the hero in this day. But He says, look at Abraham, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater than himself, he swore by himself saying, and this is God, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and I will surely multiply you. And then it says, and thus having patiently waited, Abraham received the promise. Oh, did he? Remember he was called out of a Mesopotamia, a heathen people, to go to a land, kind of like Brian is, Florida, <laughs> to go to this land. And when he was called out to go to this land, God didn't even tell him where he was going. Now that takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? I'm going to call you out to land. Where are we going? We'll talk about it later. <laughs> so off he went by faith. And he got in, and then God, when he got into that land, God says, I'm going to give you all this land as far as you can see. I'm going to multiply you as the stars of the heavens, and I'm going to make your name great and bless you all over the world, and everybody will know who you are. That's a pretty stout statement to a guy who shepherds sheep. But you know what it said? It said Abraham walked out under that clear sky, looking it up at all those stars, and then it says this, and Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That was about 45. Then it got to be 55. 65. God says, I'm going to bless you and multiply you. 75. 85. I'm going to bless you and multiply you. You know, Abraham didn't even own anything. No land. He just kind of grazed on other people's land. No family. He tried once, but it was not the right thing to do. 90, 95, 99. God shows up and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Sarah was on the other side of the tent listening. She cracked up. <laughs> That's what it says. She fell out laughing. But you know what? Abraham didn't laugh. Says he believed God. He's stuck in there in this season of life that was inconceivable, literally. And believe God. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so here Isaac shows up at 100 years of age. His son. And yet, and yet is this it? I mean, now, now he was excited about a son, no doubt. But remember at the end... Abraham died, and here's what he had. No influence except locally. No land except he owned his wife's grave and one son. And you know what it says about Abraham when he died? <laughs> Genesis 25, 8. 
And Abraham died at a ripe old age, totally satisfied with life. No regrets. You know why? Because he inherited all the promises. He didn't inherit just those promises. Because of what he had gone through, because of the course of his life, he got to the end. God gave him a son. He saw if God could do that, God will do everything else. And so in his old age, he enjoyed the promises as if they were fulfilled, though they were still yet future to him. He thought of himself as being a great man. He looked at the land and said, it's mine. He said, I'm going to have unbelievable descendants. He enjoyed all of that from a distance and inherited the promise. Now I say that because God has promised you an abundant life. And some of you are saying, well, where is it? God has said He's going to bless you, and you say, I don't see any blessing. He's given you a hope, and you feel hopeless. An eternity, but you can't see it in the now. It's the same situation. Despite your pre present circumstances, do you have the faith and patience to believe Him? See, that's the real question today. Do you have that kind of faith and patience to believe Him so that you can avoid being sluggardly? So that you can avoid dropping out so that you can, can stay in there till you have full assurance, even at the end of your life, will you be able to smile with no regrets? And even though the abundant life was not what you thought it was, you still embrace it and enjoy it at a distance, knowing that you're going to get there? See, the Christian life is a full orb life. It's not in points of time or even in this life. It expands all the way into eternity. Well, that's what the writer wants these people to know. He says Abraham's life declared that he was faithful, that he could do it, that he finished well, and he had no regrets. Now look at your friends. Look at those without God. Look at those who've lived for things and other things. Look at the end of their life. Can they say that? Will they say that? I haven't heard any. But not only does Abraham's life declare his faithfulness, but that God was faithful too. And that's the last part. Let me just read it for you and we'll finish. It says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation at the end of every dispute. We saw that in the Senate hearings with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. Remember everybody getting up there and swearing by someone greater than themselves? Giving an oath. In the same way, God desires even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, that is, enters into the very presence of God. We have that. God has given us an anchor that's absolutely trustworthy. It's Himself. He is not only sworn by Himself, since there's no one else to swear to other than Himself, that's higher, but He's also taken an oath saying, I'm going to give you this life that I promised you in My Son. Whether you're experiencing it or not, Abraham didn't experience it all the time either. But I'm going to give it to you. So don't drop out. Finish with no regrets. Live the life. And if you do, you'll come to a place where you can look and have the full assurance 
that this was the right thing to do. That's what he's saying here. He uses this word anchor. It's the only time it's used, though we sing a lot about anchor in a Christian hymnology. An anchor in those old days would often be a key instrument in getting a ship into a safe harbor. What they would do is the ship would be trying to navigate through the sandbars and the rocks and whatever, but it would park outside the harbor and a little boat would come out and take the anchor off the big ship and put it actually in the boat and then go back into the harbor, this little boat would, with the anchor tied to this rope. And then once it was in the harbor, it would secure that anchor and then they would pull the big ship in. Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 20, is our forerunner. He's the anchor. He's already gone into the holy place of God, assuring us of an abundant life. And He's there with that, the anchor of our soul. And He's saying, come on in. Let me pull you in. And the last thing we want to do, going through the rocks and the reefs and the sandbars, is to cut the rope. But it takes faith, doesn't it? <laughs> And it takes patience. Incredible patience. You know, I'd like to close here this morning speaking really to two groups here today. And, and the first group is this. Those of you who maybe have grown up in the church, you've been in the church, you maybe have been active in all sorts of things, but I want to ask you, in all seriousness, though you maybe have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, have you received His lifestyle? Have you come to a place where you've embraced Him and said, saying, with, and it has to take great faith. It's, it's as much a leaping off place as it was when you first believed. But you say, I believe that the life Jesus Christ lived on earth was for me just as much as His death. And what He said and how He lived will guarantee me satisfaction and assurance and a hope. But I've got to receive it too. I've got to embrace it and say, I'm going to do it. may get rough out there. Waves may get high. I may feel at times absolutely parched. But I'm going to see it through to the end. Do you believe Jesus Christ that much? Not for something in the distance. For something right now. Will you receive His lifestyle? Commit to it as a young person, his purity, his integrity as a businessman, his commandments as a woman or as a man. See, that's a, that's a big issue. But it's never going to get better until you get committed. Then secondly, maybe there are those of you who just came in here this morning and you don't have an anchor at all. You're not even sure about who Jesus Christ is or maybe you know about Him but you've never come to a place where you've asked Him into your life to save you, period. Do you think this world is going to make you satisfied? Look at your friends. Look at your family. Really. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Come to Me. I'll give you rest. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community.
This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.